right. We'll go ahead and dismiss the kids now to Sunday school. I bet you they were getting nervous. They're like, no, he's going to make us stay up here and listen to him. Um, they can head downstairs with Corey and Hannah. If you want to go down to Sunday school, now is the time. And if not, you can stay up here. No problem at all. Whatever works best. Amen. All right, I mentioned last week in last week's sermon that we're going to uh, just spend the next couple of weeks talking about the, the tabernacle and the temple that's found in the Old Testament and, and the importance of that and the, uh, how that fits into the overall redemption story that's found in God's preserved word in his Bible. Um, it's an important topic for us to, to understand and to know, especially in the culture that we live in. Oftentimes when you encounter your neighbors and your loved ones, your family, uh, they'll often ask, well, there's, there's, old, there's temples in the Old Testament, so shouldn't we have temples now? Right? And so why, how can we answer that in a biblical mindset? How can we frame that? So this is a, an, an opportunity this morning to, to look into God's word and try to understand the, the reason that God instituted the tabernacle, later on the temple, and, um, and ultimately how, praise be to God, Christ fulfills those things. And that's why there's no need for a, a temple made with hands any longer. And so we'll, we'll p- unpack that this morning. So you'll see the mention of the tabernacle back in Exodus. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to be just kind of jumping around. This is a topical sermon, so we're not just sticking in one section of, this, of, the, of the scripture. But uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be slow enough where you can try to follow me. Uh, most of it's going to be in Exodus. Um, but we're going to start in Exodus 29, where we have a, a, a summary of the tabernacle and what is to be going on there at the tabernacle. Exodus is the record, historical record of Moses uh, leading the children out of Israel. They're wandering around. The children of Israel are running around the, the wilderness for 40 years after Exodus led them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And uh, the, the historical narrative here accounts for God's chosen people and what occurred, the, the Ten Commandments, the, all the ceremonial laws that God had given his people, and ultimately the, the command to establish this tabernacle while they're wandering in the wilderness. So Exodus 29, verse 42, the word of the Lord says this, this will be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance to the tent. The tent is this tabernacle, this tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. I will also meet with the Israelites there, and that place will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Verse 45 says, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we just ask that your spirit would lead God and direct this time as we open up your word, Father, that your spirit would demonstrate to us and witness and testify, Father, of your truth. Father, each one of us under, uh, in, under this roof this morning, even those maybe online, we're all uh, at di- different uh, walks or different areas of our walk with you. We're just struggling differently in different trials and tribulations, Father. And, and, and you know all those things, God. And so we just call out to you this morning and ask that your spirit would do a work in us. 
that you would guide us to truth, that you would individually work in us the, the things that need to be ministered to in our hearts, Father, this morning. I just pray for us and that we would uh, have a greater understanding of just your magnificent redemption story. Father, and that we might be, have the opportunity and the ability to communicate more effectively the grand picture of what you're doing in this world. That in spite of the sin and the brokenness and the evil that pervades in this world, you are in the midst and you are working. We're so grateful for that, Lord. So help us to glean these things and help us to be able to, to, to communicate this good news that you've provided for us in Jesus. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. So we have this uh, explanation of the, of the tabernacle. God says, I want a tabernacle so I can be in your midst, that I can dwell with you. So the tabernacle was going to be in the center of this camp. The, the, the tribes of Israel will be wandering around and following the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, fire by night. God is, is leading his people. And when the, the cloud of the fire stops, they are to set up camp. And in the middle of that camp is to be this tabernacle. This is where God w- wants to dwell with his people. And so we see God is using the tabernacle as a means to demonstrate his desire to dwell with his people in the midst of them. And that's the big picture of who our God is and, and why we're here. The, the explanation of what is my life all about. It's for God's glory, but it's for us to receive His blessing and to be completely dependent on Him. That is the reason for our existence is to, to give God the glory due, but ultimately be dependent on Him and to worship Him in truth and in spirit. He created us to have relationship with Him. And that's the big picture. That's the redemptive story that we find in all of Scripture. It's not just Exodus, and it's not just the book of John, or it's not just the letter that we find the gospel message. The gospel message is the good news that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to Him and have our relationship restored with Him forever. That's the big picture. And we see here the tabernacle. God's still desiring to be in the midst of his people. But we need to back up even further to understand the, the, the larger picture, God's redemptive story. So the Bible is, you know, 66 books, over 40 different authors, written over thousands, a couple thousand years. But yet it is one story. It is of God. It is God's redemptive story. And the story begins in Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter 1. God creating everything, and he looks, and it was good, and he he comes here in verse 27 of Genesis 1 and says this, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so the the capstone of his creation is is man and and woman. They're they're, they're the, the image of God demonstrated in his creation. We have attributes that only God has. He's given to us alone as human beings, as uh, uh, as our image bearers of us being image bearers of God. We have the ability to love. We have the ability to have compassion. We have the ability to reason. All these things are, are attributes given to us by our divine maker. There are some attributes that are not ours. They're the incommunicable attributes of God. All knowing, being everywhere, uh, all at once, all those things, these, those are not attributes of the created being, but he has given us some. So we are to reflect God in his creation as his image bearers. That was his intention for us. 
He goes on in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so he gave us the, the divine command to, 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 um, to take care of the earth, to rule over it. That is his calling to humankind. And God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant and the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. So God is saying, I have made a creation. It is perfect, and I provided sustenance for all things that has the breath of life. Even Adam and Eve, they could partake of any fruit of the garden except for this one, this one tree. As an act of obedience, they were to abstain from from, um, partaking of the tree that we all know the story and have heard since childhood, right? And that was God's purpose. That was God's intention to, to provide for his creation to, for us to look to him in complete and utter dependence on God. That's what Adam and Eve were to do. goes on in verse 3, when God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. And so God has revealed to us the creation of this universe and the reason why we're here. God, as we see... Uh, was communing with Adam and Eve on a daily basis. They had relationship with one another. And then Genesis chapter 3 comes, and something drastically happens. Adam and Eve take the temptation of the devil, of the serpent. They partake of the tree. The devil comes in and says, did God really say? What does he do? He starts to question God. He starts to question God's character and God's word. Did God really say those things? Adam and Eve partake of the fruit. And we know that God had warned Adam what would happen if they were to partake of the fruit that they should surely die. Not only the physical death that we all are faced with now, but the spiritual death. The death means separation. This spiritual death that happens, that this close communion with our God is no longer there. We are now separated from our God. And we see that played out in Genesis. After they partake of the fruit, in Genesis 3, verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening. After they had fallen, after they had partaken of the temptation, they had both eaten the fruit. And instead of communing with God and being with God and walking closely with God, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Something has drastically happened. They are no longer in communion with God, they are suffering the consequence of the fall of sin. And so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I have heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11, and he asked, Who told you that you were naked? The passage just before here in, in Genesis chapter 1 God said that he made both Adam and Eve and they were naked and they were good and everything was so there was no shame. They were in perfect communion with not only God but with one another. Can you imagine a marriage relationship that was perfect, that had perfect communion with no fighting? After this fall, after they partake of the, the fruit, 
they are not only have their relationship is now separated from God, but now they have relation they have relationship problems with one another. God asked them, "Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" God already knows the question, the answer, but He's playing it out for them and, and for the benefit of us and His recorded word. The man replied, "The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate." And so instead of this perfect union between man and and wife, husband and wife, we now have the husband blaming, shift blaming, right? It's not me. It's the woman you gave me. And ultimately what he's saying is I'm blaming you, God, because you're the one that gave her to me. I'm not going to take personal responsibility for my actions. It's not my fault. So we see this, this break, break in relationship between God and man and, and between one another. And we all can testify to the fact that it is work to keep relationships working in this world. There's ample evidence of broken relationships all around us. And this all stems back to this moment in the garden. This fall. This separation from our God. Verse 13, so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will always move on your belly, eat dust. So he's announcing the consequences of this action, this temptation that, that, that Adam and Eve gave into, partook of the fruit. There are consequences of our actions. We see th- even through the Old Testament and through, through Scripture, we, we, we stand in forgiveness of God through what Jesus has done, and, and we can extend forgiveness to one another as we hurt one another and all those things. But that doesn't mean the consequences of our actions are taken away. We still have to face the consequences. Forgiveness extended, yes, but the consequences aren't always just taken away. And we see this here. The consequences of Adam and Eve's decision to partake of the fruit have affected humanity ever since. Because we are all born with this heart that is separated from our God. But I see, I entitled this the good news. So we see the bad news, but, but even in Genesis chapter 3, God has already begun to mention the good news. Because he's talking to the serpent, the devil, and he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, because of his temptation, Addison and I were talking through this verse last night after last night's service. It was really good stuff. And so I want to try to explain it, but it can be pretty confusing pretty quickly. So he's saying, I'm going to put hostility. I'm going to put something in between you and the woman, between your offspring. So, so what has happened is the serpent, because of what he's done, he's tricked or he's tempted Adam and Eve. They've partaken of the fruit. And so now all the offspring from, from Eve are now born separated from God, no longer children of God, but children of the devil. It's his offspring now because he says, he's, I've won. Humanity is now separated from their God. But God says, oh no, I'm not done. You may have won, think you've won the battle, but God's going to win the war. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. All of 
Eve's descendants will be born separate from God, but he, God is going to do something. He's going to put something in between. And what does he put in between him and the woman and her offspring? The next sentence there. It's a he. A personal pronoun. He will strike your head. The first mention of the Messiah. Already, God, from the foundation of the world, because he's all-knowing, knew exactly what was to happen. This, this is his plan being carried out, and he says, I'm going to put some a hostility between you and the woman, and he will strike your head. He will deliver you the crush blow, the, the death blow, Satan. You might strike his heel right at the cross, putting the Messiah to death. Many thought, okay, the, those following Jesus and his crusade, are, it, it, it's over now. He's dead. He says, you might strike his heel, but he will ultimately crush your head. This he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who the Old Testament, God through human history, begins to reveal who this he, this Messiah will be, what tribe he is going to be born from, what lineage he's from, uh, the King David, and um, just multiple, multiple messianic prophecies of who this he will be. And Jesus fulfills them all. So there's some good news even in the midst of the bad news. And so we can stand here today and we can look at the, what seems to be happening, the, the fabric of our, of our country falling apart, and, and we, we see nothing but evil it seems to be invading and increasing all the more. But we have hope because God is not finished. God has made a way of rescue and reconciliation through this He, through Jesus Christ. So yeah, there's bad news, but in order to really and truly understand the good news of Jesus, you have to understand the bad news. You have to understand who you are in the eyes of a holy God outside of Jesus. You will never measure up. You won't even come close to measuring up to His holiness. And the temple and the tabernacle and the laws of the Old Testament are all designed to demonstrate that to us. So as we begin to understand or to answer the question, what, what is the importance of the tabernacle? That's one of them. God meant it to demonstrate that we are in need of rescue. And so if we go on here. Um, the Word of God describes the consequences not only to the devil, but also to the woman and to the man. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be your husband. Your, your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. And so what that's saying is, is you, look, that perfect communion between man and woman, that's no longer. And you're, you're going to have something in your heart that wants to rule over your husband. You, you, want, you, want, to, you want to be the ruler of your own life. And so he's, he's warning her, look, this, is gonna, the, this relationship is not only affected between you and God, but it's between you and other, others, and especially in, in, in marriage. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There's going to be conflict in relationships. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by the means of painful labor all the days of your life. We can, in this area of the country, testify to that, right? How difficult it is to bring a, just to bring a crop forth. Well, for some of us that aren't as gifted as Mike Fox in the back is 
Mr. Gardner back there. Right? I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. And so we have this ultimate consequence of what he warned them, what would happen. If you partake of this fruit, you shall surely die. And he says the consequence is you're going to return back to the dust from where you began. You're dust and you will return to the dust. Death, physical death, but spiritual death, separation from our God. But we see here the good news in Genesis 3.15 that God is not finished, that we're not just languishing in this bad news, that God has a plan, God has some good news. And then God ultimately makes provision for Adam and Eve. We find in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, that, or in chapter 2, or 3, sorry, Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve, when they found that they were ashamed, they, they partook of the fruit and they look at each other, they see that they're naked and they, they're, they're ashamed. The immediate consequence of, of sin is the shame and the guilt that we have. And so they see each other, and so they, they perform man's first religion, and they, they take fig leaves, and they begin to cover themselves with fig leaves, to cover themselves, to cover their shame. And God's showing us here in Genesis 3.21, no amount of our self-effort or no amount of our religion, how, how hard we work to cover our shame will work. It is God who has to make the provision. It is God who must provide a means of reconciliation and covering, atonement, to be covered. And we see here, even in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made clothing from skins of animals. The Lord put to death animals and covered Adam and Eve with the skins of these animals. He clothed them. And this is the first mention of what we will see all throughout the Old Testament, that God requires a sacrifice God requires an atonement for us to be reconciled to Him. We need to be covered by God, God's provision. And what is God's provision ultimately? We'll find out. Genesis 12, 1-3. So we see the bad news. We see that God has provided the covering for Adam and Eve. But we also see as He's revealing His redemptive story that God chooses a people and He chooses Abraham to be the father of His people. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, who's, or Abram at this point, and who's in the land of Ur. And He says, I've chosen you. And we see that in Genesis 12. And for those of us that have been in the room for the, the, the uh, um, our walk through Galatians, we, we know that this is the beginning of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's calling um, Abram from where he, was, he lived. Where? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make you a name great and you will be a blessing. So God uses Abraham to, to, to be the father of this people that God has chosen. In Deuteronomy 7, and he says, I've chosen you not because you're powerful and mighty, but it's because you're weak and small, and that way I can get my glory from you. He chooses broken people because we're all broken. That provides this great encouragement right there. But he, we see that God promises to deliver this he, this he that is prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's going to come through Abraham. Abraham's seed. 
who is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples. It's not just the Jews. It's all the peoples of the earth will ultimately be blessed through you, Abraham. Right? And we stand here in 2021 looking back thousands of years of human history. And we stand as benefactors of this because we know Jesus did not come just to save the Jews alone. But to all the nations to every nation, kindred, and tongue, for all those who receive and believe Jesus and accept his accomplished work, his sacrifice, his atonement, can be added into God's family, can be rescued from the sin, that f- their, their separation from their God by simply trusting in what Christ has done alone. So God promises it's going to be through Abraham, And then we see uh, as his redemptive story unfolds, we see that Moses is, uh, God's people are ultimately in captivity in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God chooses another man, Moses, to lead his people out of captivity. And so back in Exodus 3.15, God had also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, right? God chose Abraham, who then had Isaac, who then had Jacob, who then had 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel that we see wandering in the wilderness as Moses is leading them. And this is my name forever. Moses says, who, who is, when God comes to Moses and says, I'm choosing you to lead God, my people out of Egypt, he says, who should I tell him I sent, uh, has sent me? He says, I am that I am. The ego of me. The all existing, always existing one. In Genesis 3, or Exodus 3.14. And he goes on to say, say this, the God of, a- of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is how I am to be remembered in every generation. And he goes on, let all, in um, verse 10, let all the, uh, so, so God chooses Moses to lead uh, his children out of captivity, out of Egypt, and we all, all know the story of the Red Sea crossing, right? The Red Sea parts, and God's people uh, passes over the, on dry land, and then the, the waters come back in on Pharaoh's army, and uh, we see all that through what is recorded in the Scriptures as well. And so we see God miraculously moving in that way, and then they're out wandering in the wilderness, and God had promised them a promised land, right? God said, I'm going to give you a land. And as they... Crossing over to the Red Sea, it becomes very apparent that God still needs to teach them a few things. And so he spends the next 40 years allowing God's people to go through the wilderness, to go through trials and tribulations, to demonstrate how his power and his authority to learn, to teach them to be dependent on him, to all those things. And we can see God using that time in the wilderness. And often we'll hear people say, even in, the, in our context, uh, how are you doing right now? Well, I'm kind of going through a wilderness season. God's got me in some trials, tribulations. He's refining me right now. It's difficult, but God's with me. And we see that happening in these 40 years. And in the 40 years, God takes Moses up to, to uh, Mount Sinai and gives him the Ten Commandments and all the laws that they are to follow to demonstrate his holiness, to demonstrate his standard of who he is and all those things. And, and he then says, 
uh, you need to also make this tabernacle. And it's very detailed. If you read the book of Exodus, you'll see how, how much detail goes in to this tabernacle. So Exodus 35, 10 through 19 just gives us a summary of all the things that God had called his people to get and to build this tabernacle. And I think it's important that we go through it just to see uh, just how detailed this, this plan this, of this tabernacle, God's idea of the tabernacle is to be. Let all the skilled artisans among you come and make everything that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and covering, its clasps and supports, its crossbars, its pillars and bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain for the screen. So we have here in verse 12 the, the ark of the covenant that they are to carry. And then on top of that sits on the ark of the covenant is the mercy seat that's going to be a, play a huge role in the temple. And they're to have all these things. And the curtain that separates the ark of the covenant between the, the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. Verse 13, the table with the poles and the utensils and the bread of presence. The lampstand for light with its utensils and the lamps as well as the oil for the light. The altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incenses, the entryway screen for the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grate, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the courtyard, its posts and bases, and the screen for the gate of the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle, and the tent pegs for the courtyard, along with the ropes. And he ends here, and the specially woven garments for the ministering of the sanctuary, the holy garments for the priests, Aaron and the garments of his sons to serve as priests. And so God commands his people to have build this tabernacle to build the items within it and this is to be the central location of where god would demonstrate his dwelling among his people his shekinah glory that led them was as the temple or as the tabernacle was built um, the scriptures declared that his glory would come down into the holy of holies and his glory would fill the fill that room the holy of holies and god would be in the midst of his of his people it kind of would look like this, the tabernacle. All that stuff that we just summarized is found in here. So you see the curtain, the entrance there. You go through the entrance, and the first thing that you see is an altar. And this, these are all important things. This is God demonstrating to them. They're, they didn't have the Bible that they could just pull out on their phone or whatever, right? This is God demonstrating to them the, uh, the, what, is, what is needed to have relationship with the holy God. And the first thing they see is sacrifice, a means of atonement. The altar where the animals would be sacrificed and the brazen, uh, brazen labor where the priests would do their ceremonial washings. And then we see the, the temple there in the back and the, the pillar of smoke or by day or um, fire by night and that God's glory would come down into the holy of holies and dwell there amongst his people and this is kind of the takeaway it's probably hard to see in the back but we see the the outer courtyard then the holy place and there's there's items in there the the um the lampstand the the um temple of um oh it's escaping me now uh incense and and showbread 
Uh, those things are in the holy place. But then there's this place called the Holy of Holies, and that's where we were talking about where the, the, the ark and the mercy seat would, would reside. And, and there's a thick veil that, that separated um, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies versus the holy place. And this is what the, the Ark of the Covenant would look like. That's where that would, the, that would sit and then God's glory would fill that place and, and he would reside there. We can see that here in Exodus 40. The cloud covered the tent of meetings and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so we see here God's desire again through the tabernacle or to, to demonstrate to his people he wants to reside with his people. He wants to have relationship with his people. But there's something going on in this tabernacle that's teaching them and us that the issue that happened in the garden still needs to be taken care of. And so there's three points that I want to bring to us this morning as far as the importance or the purpose of the tabernacle. And it can get much deeper, but I just want to just finish this morning just with three important points. The tabernacle provided separation. We see that, right? God's dwelling in the Holy of Holies is His presence is cut off from His people through a series of veils. Demonstrating to His people that, yes, I desire to be with you, but you cannot come into my presence because of my holiness and you are sinful. And so the tabernacle was a means to demonstrate to his people and to us of God's holiness. And he cannot dwell with sin. And so because of his holiness and our sin, we are separated. The consequence of the fall is ever before the children of Israel in the wilderness as they look to the tabernacle. God is there, but his presence is is cut off from us. And the second point, the tabernacle provided mediation. Mediation. Medi- a mediator, someone that stands in between, right? A holy God, a sinful people. What is standing in between a holy God and a sinful people? And, and God uses the tabernacle to demonstrate through the Levitical priesthood that there needs to be a mediator. Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priests, he says. Aaron and his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. These are, Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. And so often we might hear the word Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. This is the Old Testament priests that are found here. And they are the ones that do the work in the temple or in the tabernacle. They're the ones keeping the oil of the lamps going. And they're the ones providing the sacrifices, doing the sacrifices. They're the ones that God has chosen to be the mediators between a holy God and a sinful people. So the first one is the tabernacle provided a means to demonstrate the separation between God and man. The tabernacle also provided a sense that we need a mediator. We need someone to, to reconcile us to a holy God. We are in have a sin account that we cannot in and of ourselves be released of. We can't work enough good to be released of that. And then the third point is the tabernacle provided atonement. A covering. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. 
since it is is the lifeblood that makes atonement. And you might be sitting there going, that's pretty gory. Exactly. That's how despicable and gory our sin is in the eyes of a holy God. This is how important it is for our holy God to, to deal with sin wholly and justly. And so the tabernacle God instituted to demonstrate to his people that there needed to be an atonement. Do you remember back God uh, slayed animals and covered Adam and Eve with their skins? Demonstrating the need for God's provision, God's covering. And the tabernacle is just another step forward in that to, to demonstrate to God's people and to us that God needs to have a provision, a place for us to be atoned for. And it's through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of the blood, there's no remission of sins. And so you see in the daily uh, works of the, of the tabernacle and later on the temple, daily sacrifices of animals, of lambs and goats without spot or blemish. They're to be specific in what they are to sacrifice. And this was Exodus 29:38. This is what you are to do. Offer it regularly on the altar every day, two-year-old lambs. This is, this is God demonstrating to him the seriousness of sin. And the serious importance of understanding our need to be covered, to be atoned for. It not only happened daily, but there was one uh, day where the high priest Aaron and then later the high priest that would follow after his death would go into the Holy of Holies and provide a blood sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And this was to be a, a covering of God's people's, all of God's people's sins for that year. It was year after year they would do this. It's called the Day of, of Atonement or Yom Kippur. The tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to present a food offering to the Lord. On this particular day, you are not to do any work, but as the Day of Atonement to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. And so we see this, this continuous focus that God has on his people of, of dealing with sin and the importance of, of them seeing that they're separated from their God, that there needed to be a mediator, there needed to be an atonement. Day after day, this was always before them. Could you imagine the blood that was coming from, those temple, from the tabernacle and from the temple mount? Of all the sacrifices, how gory that is, and that is exactly what God intended to show us, to demonstrate to us. Just how sinful we truly are. But there's comes to the point now where we say, well, if God allowed for a tabernacle to atone and later on the temple, then why do we not have a temple or a tabernacle now? And you might get that question, in the, especially in the culture that we're in. I often say, well, God had temples in the Old Testament. Why wouldn't there be temples now? And this is the great part. Because Jesus is the temple. He is the final sacrifice once and for all. The tabernacle and the temple were all pointing at types, pointing towards the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Pointing and demonstrating to us that those things that were happening in the tabernacle were just a covering. There needed to be something much greater than the death of blood animals. 
It is the death of Christ, the Messiah. Hebrews, right of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, right? The Old Testament law, we talked about it and we were going through Galatians, was just given to demonstrate how sinful we truly were and all those things, all those works and the temple and the tabernacle were all pointing to a shadow of a reality. The reality is Jesus and his sacrificial work. There's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year in the Old Testament. Otherwise, why wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, the writer of Hebrews are saying, look, if that was truly the atonement, why didn't they stop? No, day after day, year after year, that's what they were had to do. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped if being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any conscience of sin? But that wasn't the case. It was year after year. Verse 3, but in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins year after year. And he goes on to say, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the, the blood of bulls and goats to ultimately take away the sin that separates us between us and the holy God. He says that's impossible. It was just pointing to this Messiah that would come once and for all. Verse 8, we jump to in Hebrews 10. After he says, he says, uh, above you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings or sin offerings. This is uh, speaking of Jesus saying these things which are offered according to the law. He's like, God ultimately wasn't satisfied. His, his wrath and his judgment was not satisfied in those things. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. Christ says, I've come to do your will, O God. You remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father? He says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, the Old Testament, the laws, the, 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 the standard to establish the second, the new covenant, establishing the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ. We have a new and living way, not through sacrifices of animals day after day, but through a new and living way because I have good news for you. We celebrated just a couple of days ago. Not only did Jesus die, but he rose from the grave. He defeated death. The consequence of sin has been defeated in Christ. We have a new and living way. We can approach God, uh, the Holy of Holies, uh, through our mediator, Jesus Christ. There needs to be a mediator. Guess what? Jesus is declared to be our high priest once and for all. Not through lineage, but because of who he stands. He stands at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for the saints. The tabernacle demonstrates that there was separation, but there needed to be a mediator and there needed to be an atonement. And Jesus atoned for our sin once and for all, and he stands as our mediator. Praise be to God. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified, set apart, made holy. That's what sanctified means. Through following a bunch of rules. Nope. Getting baptized. Nope. Joining the church. Nope. Going to a temple. Nope. 
We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once and for all time, it is finished. That is what God has done in Christ Jesus. So why do we not use the tabernacle now? Or the temple? A temple built with hands? Because Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He was our mediator. He was our atonement that provided the means in which our separation from God could no, would no longer be. In John chapter 1, John opens his prologue declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word, 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 word was God. He goes on in John 1.14 and says this, The Word, which is Jesus, became flesh. Jesus came from, from heaven and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is, the literal word for that is tabernacled. Jesus came flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle. And just as God's glory filled the Holy of Holies and and demonstrated His glory in that way, John would go on to write, we observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. It's amazing. Matthew records as Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. And as he cries out those words, the temple, the veil that's in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom, demonstrating that there is no longer separation from top to bottom. Why on earth would we want to put the veil back up? Jesus paid it all. He's made a way for us. A new and living way. And that is why we do not need temples made with hands. Because the scriptures declare that Jesus is the ultimate temple. He told the religious leaders, in three days I will raise the temple back up. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. New Testament authors go on to say that because of those of who received Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with them, and we are now the temple of God. God dwells not amongst His people, within His people. That is the salvation that I extend to you today. Jesus isn't just something you add on. This message that has been spoken of today is the only important message that this world has to offer. There's nothing more important than what you do with this message. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him, and it costs tremendously, and he's used all of human history to demonstrate it to us. And yet, he stands and extends it to you by saying you must turn from any other way and receive and believe Jesus and his accomplished work. And if you do that, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you believe those things, if you receive him as your Savior today, the Scriptures declare you will be saved. You will be atoned for. And Jesus will stand forever as your mediator between you and a holy God. That is the good news. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus.